Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Richard Davies. And before we start the show, I'm asking you for a little iTunes love. If you enjoy listening to us, then please rate and review us. How do we fix it? Thanks. It's much worse than people think, and it was much worse than even I thought. It ends up getting invoked just to say, listen, I don't want that politician I don't like, that comedian I don't like speaking on my campus. So it ends up getting sort of weaponized and turned into a tactic in the culture wars. What if we had a show about solutions? Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So here's the problem, Richard. It seems like free speech is under attack more than ever before on college campuses. College students increasingly demanding protection from words, ideas, and even emotions they don't like. You know, and the emotions is the really key part. People are, there's an ethos on campus today that if someone's upset about something, it's someone else's fault. And that we need to control the speech to protect people from some kind of emotional harm. Our podcast is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest this week is Greg Lukianoff. He's a constitutional lawyer and the president and CEO of FIRE. That's the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. This is a group that has worked all over the country protecting the rights of students from speech codes, things being banned, all, all kinds of assaults on free speech. And the thing that sparked this show was the cover story in The Atlantic, The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg co-wrote that with Professor Jonathan Haidt of New York University. Yeah, and it's a, one of those articles that really kind of hits the zeitgeist, and it's really brought this issue, which has been bubbling for years, into, into focus. So it's great to have Greg on to discuss the problem, but also some solutions. Greg's joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. So, Greg, how big is this problem? Well, I'm a First Amendment lawyer, and I've been doing this for 15 years. And I have to say, it's been pretty bad and pretty ridiculous for a long time when it comes to the uh, speech policing on college campuses. It's much worse than people think. And it was much worse than even I thought coming from the ACLU and from a free speech background. I was still routinely shocked at how easy it is to get in trouble on the modern campus. But the thing that's changed in the past two years is that for the most part, it's been out-of-control administrators that have been enforcing sort of like unbelievably strict speech uh, codes 
but in the past two years, I'm seeing a lot more more of the speech policing being taken on by the students themselves, and that's a very disturbing trend. Let, give me a couple of examples, Greg, of how this has changed literally in the last two years. Sure. Um, well, definitely one of the things that really first clued us in was the rise of sort of what, what we refer to at FIRE as disinvitation season, um, where <laughs> suddenly there was just this spike of, of, of movements to get uh, speakers students didn't like um, uh, disinvited from speaking there. And this included even people like the like Christine Lagarde, who was, who was head of the IMF, um, you know, very accomplished woman if there ever was one, or the former uh, uh, chancellor of Berkeley. Um, there was a disinvitation push against him. And it really, you know, came to a head when they tried to disinvite Bill Maher from speaking at UC Berkeley on the day uh, at, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement. Yeah, because some of these speakers that have been disinvited in the past were well-known conservatives, but Bill right. Maher certainly doesn't figure, figure in that category. He's a well-known uh, talk show liberal. Exactly. And then there's there's a certain sadness to that, I have to say, that people kind of didn't notice it until it, <laughs> until it being a series of famous liberals getting disinvited. But nonetheless, you know, it, it is more newsworthy when it ends up being even a comedian, you know, facing a disinvitation push. Now, when we talk about the, this, the rise of um, students pushing back, um, mm-hmm. there's a few different elements. I'd love you to explain them. One is the concept of microaggressions. What, sure. What is a microaggression? And microaggressions are are unconscious, uh, usually unconscious slights that you make that are either racist or sexist. Those are generally the two categories. So, for example, um, you know, really emphasizing the fact that a that an African-American speaker is articulate would be your sort sort of your classic microaggression, because it's sort of implicitly insulting. It's implying that that's kind of weird. Um, So that's that's the microaggression that I think everyone understands. Now, the other phrase you've mentioned is trigger warnings. What what are they? Trigger warnings are ver- usually verbal warnings that you place uh, in front of any material that a student might find upsetting or quote unquote triggering. Um, so, and so it's kind of like a warning label for speech. It's like a warning label for speech. But the problem is the categories for what require trigger warnings just get bigger and bigger. And even though they usually use PTSD to justify um, trigger warnings, it's uh, increasingly students who have no PTSD at all saying, I just don't want to hear about, for example, um, the law of sexual assault at Harvard Law School. One thing that made a lot of news was at Columbia, a series of students wrote um, to the president saying that, Ovid's metamorphosis required a trigger warning because uh, it includes sexual violence and it includes racism and sexism. Yeah, and and almost every major work of literature sure. involves some kind of human conflict or trauma. And one, would, one would hope. <laughs> you, know, you don't have a lot of drama without that. So I'm really intrigued by this idea that everyone feels they need protection right. from things that we used to feel were just part of the give and take of of culture that we're able to talk about really bad things, especially in an academic setting. Right. And this is why we called it vindictive protectiveness, because it's taken on uh, because the sort of speech policing has taken on a particularly harsh edge. And it's protectiveness in the sense that people tend to uh, appeal to the fact that there's this other group that needs protecting. And then they can get, frankly, very uh, aggressive in, 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 uh, in, in fighting to suppress speech that they think might offend that other group. So it's kind of a paternalism uh, run amok. The example that really struck me, I was kind of astounded by this, was that you can't teach rape law in a law school or in an undergraduate course on legal principles. 
Yeah, that scares me to death. And I, and I, and, and I could see that coming even when I was in school and law school back in the late 90s. Um, so this wasn't really that much of a surprise. But to have Professor Jeannie Sook write in The New Yorker saying that, you know, colleagues are coming to her saying that they're not even going to teach rape law anymore because they get too many student complaints about it. it, it its implications well, what are, are terrifying. The, what are the complaints? That, that it's too traumatic for, for students to have to think about rape. Um, potentially because some of them might be victims or some of them just might find it too, you know, uh, quote unquote, triggering to, 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 to listen to. And of course, who this hurts the most are victims of sexual assault. So, Greg, in your Atlantic cover story from the September issue, one of the things that I found so fascinating was really looking into some of the psychology of what is driving students to be so kind of uh, hypersensitive and, and, and feel like their need of such protection and, and PTSD, you know, post-traumatic um, stress disorder is one of those things that it seems like it's gone from something that a very small number of maybe military veterans or survivors of very extreme situations have to where it's almost as if um, lots of people consider themselves having this. And I'm not just talking about, you know, rape victims, which where you could cer- certainly understand that. But it seems like um, like half the student population thinks they've got some kind of psychological damage that requires protection. Is, is that a fair reading? The numbers of students not necessarily claiming PTSD, but that are reporting anxiety and depression has gone up, uh, you know, depending on what study you look at, has gone up pretty dramatically. And when I talk to, for example, the dean of Yale Law School, he talks about numbers that are absolutely mind-boggling in terms of the numbers of students coming in that report either anxiety and depression. So let's walk this back just for a moment, what is it that people want protection from? They want protection from anything they might find upsetting in speech? I mean, it seems bizarre at a university where you're supposed to go to learn new concepts and ideas. Right. Well, it depends on the individual. It depends on the individual student. Some of them have a very narrow conception of what they want to be warned about. You know, it might just be sexual assault in some cases. They just want to know if there's going to be a rape scene in a book. But in other cases, and this is just natural sort of censorship gravity, essentially, it ends up getting invoked just to say, listen, I don't want that that politician I don't like, that comedian I don't like speaking on my campus. So it ends up getting sort of weaponized and turned into a tactic in the culture wars. Weaponized. That's a, that's a great way to describe it. And I think that term you use, the, the vindictive protect, protectiveness, it's hard for people who haven't seen this to recognize just how intense these campaigns are, you know, often using social media to target and and yeah. shame and humiliate a certain person or, or speaker and really drive them out of the zone of of common discourse. It, not just that, that you disagree with them, but they should be banished. Yep, absolutely. We're also coming out with a documentary in which we interview John Ronson, who wrote that book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is specifically about the sort of vitriolic demonization that we that we seem to be promoting in society, that if we see someone that we see as a villain, even momentarily, or a political enemy, just how, how vicious and unproductive it can become. Yeah, I... Want to know one thing though? When we talk about higher education, very often we assume everybody's going to an elite campus, say a Dartmouth or University of California or one of the Ivy Leagues. How widespread is this really? Certainly, the prevalence of, of speech codes. The speech codes are extremely common. Uh, we, we estimate about fifty-five percent of universities maintain speech codes that would be laughed out of court, and that's uh, and that's from very extensive uh, review. When it comes to the new phenomenon of, you know, who's requesting trigger warnings. It's so new that it's hard to know 
know how common it is. You know, there's an article after article of professors coming forward and saying, yes, this is a very difficult environment in which to teach. Yeah, there was one great piece. I'm a liberal professor and I'm a, and I'm terrified of my liberal students. I right. remember saying and, and to be clear, it doesn't take a lot of students. It, it only requires a vocal minority um, to, to create a situation where people are afraid to say what they really think. Now, not only are the professors afraid, but it seems that the, the school administrations are also really afraid. And, and part of that is that this doesn't just happen in an academic vacuum. The U.S. Department of Education is involved in this. Ex- explain how that works. Yeah, this is the secret engine of why why you end up with the truly ridiculous cases on campus. And I and I talk about one case in which a student was found guilty of a racial harassment uh, several years back because he was reading a book called Notre Dame versus the Klan. Um, the book was about the defeat of the Klan when they marched on Notre Dame, but he was nonetheless found guilty of racial harassment without so much as a hearing. And this was because of the cover of the book. Because of the cover of the book and the name on the book, it made a it made an employee uncomfortable, and that was considered enough to find him guilty of racial harassment. Now, this is only possible in an environment like I've seen, where universities are incredibly nervous about um, uh, about harassment claims, and they're particularly nervous about running afoul of the Department of Education. Yeah, one of the things that really comes out of your Atlantic article is the sense that are we raising a generation of babies are we coddling uh, people uh, there's a wonderful illustration in 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 the, in the magazine of a 3-year-old child uh, sit, sitting uh, uh, as if he's a college student <laughs> I, I feel a little mixed about that because because I, I care so much about students and I think that that, that really that, that image is correct in the sense that I feel like we're doing these to a generation of students partially by helicopter parenting partially by K through 12 and by emphasizing to students this really negative message that they are very, very fragile. This is also bad psychology. People aren't that fragile. Resilience is a real thing, and, and research into resilience is very powerful. And that's one of the reasons why we got into cognitive behavioral therapy, which basically says you don't want to teach people habits that create self-fulfilling prophecies of fragility. And that, I believe that's what we're doing. So what we're seeing happen too often on campus then is someone sees something that they don't like, and they say, I feel upset. I must be upset because you're trying to make me upset. You're oppressing me. You're marginalizing me. You're excluding me. And it's your fault. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's, the emotional, that's the emotional reasoning part of it. You know, and that's part of CBT, part of, part of cognitive behavioral therapy, is to say, you know, sometimes you're offended and sometimes something should be done about it. Sometimes it's just an emotional state. It's not really an argument. And by focusing so much on people's emotional states rather than the substance of their arguments, we've gotten very far afield from productive. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
discussion. I want, I want to push back on one thing, and sure. that is that a lot of the complaints about this could be coming from, and actually it's kind of a question, are they coming from people who have power? Right. So, I mean, most of the people in our society who are in great positions of power are still white men. Right. And so the, is this part of a national conversation about how to change our culture, how to move away from one sector of society having uh, a large share of the power and other people feeling that they need to challenge that power? Uh, I would agree. But the problem is that, for, that almost I'd say probably 19 out of 20 times that the white privilege argument has come up. It's come up from very wealthy, usually white men, affluent students at affluent schools. Um, and you and honestly, when, when it's coming from them, you start thinking, is, it, is this an argument or is this more of a tactic? Meanwhile, I think implicit in a lot of the sort of the microaggression theory and privilege theory is this sort of like paternalized. We have to protect people from from actual discussion. Meanwhile, when I talk to you know, we're, we're coming out with a documentary called Can We Take a Joke? And the, uh, the, the sort of starring comedian is this uh, African-American woman, Kara Foster. And she thinks a lot of this mentality, a lot of this talking on eggshells kind of phenomena is actually based in sort of insulting ideas of what minorities are actually like. And it prevents people from genuinely interacting uh, with genuine candor with each other. So the problem looks like it's pretty severe and seems to be getting, getting worse. What do we do about it? I know you've got some solutions that you've discussed. Yeah, I wrote a, a short book called Freedom from Speech. And the bad news is that I think that these are typical and predictable problems of a society where people can choose what media they listen to and increasingly can um, kind of exp aren't as used to dealing with everyday sort of discomfort of disagreement. Um, but what I think we can do is try to uh, get people used to that again. And so one thing that I think would be very helpful would be formal debate. Um, it, it's shocking that universities don't tend to do it already. But once you actually have to have a debate, particularly if you have to take the position that you don't necessarily agree with, it becomes much harder to sort of caricature people who disagree with you as either uh, stupid or evil. I think we need some reforms with the Department of Education. I'm, I'm suddenly hopeful that that might be possible um, because uh, because of what President Obama said about this issue. He gave this great quote of talking about how um, that students shouldn't be coddled and that you should be exposed to people you disagree with and, and uh, that you don't have a right not to be offended, essentially. Can you just explain briefly how the Department of Education has exacerbated this with some of their yeah. the language they've used in their directives? Yeah. Well, there's two different ways. One is that um, in something that they referred to as a national blueprint, they redefined harassment as being any unwelcome speech. And they sp specifically got rid of the reasonable person standard in that in a letter uh, in that letter that they referred to as a blueprint for the country. So that's pretty open ended. Yeah. So so basically the problem with that, of course, is if, if we were allowed to directly challenge that in a court of law as a speech code, it wouldn't stand a minute under the First Amendment. But it's hard to actually directly challenge the Department of Education. So universities are being put in this really difficult spot of enforce this code that really uh, that, that can get them sued in a First Amendment lawsuit or face defunding or an investigation by the Department of Education. The other thing that they do uh, is that the, the universities are so scared of being investigated by the Department of Education. The fact that the Department of Education has really amped up the number of investigations it does. I think there's like 150 schools currently being investigated um, that, again, they, they tend to overreact. And if we could 
our very simple solution for that, and it's, it's a very simple one, is just define harassment the same way the Supreme Court defines it. Well, what is that uh, definition of harassment from the Supreme Court? It was unwelcome speech that's directed at, a, at an individual that's severe, persistent, and pervasive, uh, such that it effectively um, it, it interferes with a, with a student's ability to get an education. So it's a high standard, but it should be a high standard. One of the other things you mentioned in your piece, Greg, was that uh, university, universities should officially renounce trigger warnings. Now, trigger warnings, when you put it entirely on professors to guess what might have, what might upset students, you put them in, a, in an absolutely impossible situation. So even when, when professors voluntarily use trigger warnings, I think they're, 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 they're running some risk that they're going to create an expectation that it will always be on the professor to, to, to protect students and guess what, what actually might have upset them, which is, again, impossible. You say that universities should also stop promoting hypersensitivity. Is that part of this I, I do. I, th- I think that the the fragile student model is patronizing, insulting, and it's gotten out of control. Um, I think that we're not doing students any favors uh, by telling them that they're incredibly fragile. Um, if you believe you're very fragile, you're more prone to anxiety and depression, for example. So some of the ways that colleges pr- promote this hypersensitivity is, you know, freshman orientation seminars and a lot yeah. of diversity training and these things. I mean, obviously, you don't want people to be rude and, and racist and, and probably in moderation. These are these are good things. But, right. but they've gotten out of hand, uh, you think, and, and have started to promote people. So they're they become hyper vigilant for any kind of mm-hmm. offense. It's one of these things where, you know, people talk about safe spaces, uh, you know, and, 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 very, and are very critical of them. But that's partially because I think we've gotten away from what a safe space was originally supposed to be, which is a safe space was supposed to be a place where it was safe to be wrong and to have candid discussions and to say uh, to make mistakes. And but to, but to, to genuinely communicate um, who you are in, 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 a, in a situation where you're not going to get in trouble for it. And I think getting back to that would be really helpful. As far as orientations are concerned, again, I really like the idea of having debates right at right front and center. Um, but I also like the idea of having some amount that, of, rather than priming students that, listen, if you're offended, something really bad has happened. Uh, telling students is like, listen, you're going to be challenged here and it's good and it's healthy and it can even be really fun. Greg Lukianoff constitutional lawyer, president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. Jim, I know we've been talking about free speech on college campuses, and this is a real problem, but I think it's part of something much bigger. Our culture is more divided now than it used to be. We refuse very often liberals and conservatives, uh, urbanites and country folk to talk to each other, to recognize each other. Uh, I, I think that this is coming out of that. Absolutely. And more and more, we are not only saying, I disagree with what you say, but you have no right to be part of the discussion about this at all. We want you out of the public arena and, and take your ideas somewhere else because they're they're not just wrong, but they're hurtful in some way. And somehow we've made people we don't agree with into cartoon characters. Right. And people have always done this. You know, we've talked before about I think a lot of political division is a kind of tribalism. You're in my tribe. They're not in my tribe. 
And I think on college campuses, you see a very, very intensified version of this where people are constantly looking to define who's in the good tribe, who are the good ones, who are the bad ones, because they get a lot of power if they can define other people as being somehow illegitimate. But I do think that this problem has its roots in something genuine. Most people in positions of great power are white men, and that we're now seeing increasingly, and I think rightly, a society in transition that's challenging some of those assumptions about who has the right to authority. And those assumptions need to be challenged, but training people to disregard discussion, not to debate, to shy away from any kind of discussion with ideas you don't like, that's not going to make them more powerful. Uh, what the point that, that Greg was making in this article is we're making people weaker. And the real implications here aren't just this is wrong and, and it violates free speech, but these students are being trained to be emotional and really political weaklings. They're being coddled and not being prepared as well as they should be for the working world, for what's ahead. What I thought was so fascinating in there is this idea that if somebody can say, that hurt me, that hurt my feelings, that's a trump card. You know, you can't really argue against that. And then if they can claim you have no right to, to have this discussion because I feel bad. And that's really where things are heading, of course. One thing that's really fascinating to me, though, is that on the one hand, it seems that that college students may be more sensitive about all these things when they talk to each other than they used to be. But on the other hand, they're watching Game of Thrones. I mean, I, I just sat for a couple of months and watched all 50 with my wife and that show is incredibly politically incorrect and very very popular yeah it, there is a funny kind of uh, schizophrenia in our society that we're hyper hypersensitive to these issues of gender and violence and race and sex and th and yet and yet people seem to be really drawn to entertainment that's all there's nothing but that stuff so um to wrap up, let's look at some of the solutions Greg talked about. The first one I, I thought was interesting was this idea that schools should stop training people to be hypersensitive and instead teach them to be more proactive. You hear an idea you don't like, instead of raising the alarms and trying to get that person kicked off campus, debate it. Argue it. And he even argued for bringing back traditional Debates. debate Yeah, clubs. I love that. You know, that, that, that's fascinating. Yeah. And, and then also universities should discourage or strongly discourage the use of trigger warnings. Yeah, I think that's really important. I do think there's cases where people need to know. It's people who are, who are genuinely victims of, of some kind of trauma. You know, they do. Maybe they need to be careful about how they go through life. But uh, but this notion that that. This is such a widespread thing that everybody has to be protected. You know, it, it leads to a kind of um, a kind of intellectual uh, agoraphobia. You know, people are afraid to do anything because they might encounter something that's mildly troubling. And we're elevating this sense of being troubled to such a high level instead of just like, yeah, the world's full of troubling things. And I know you feel that the federal government plays an important role in this as well with its warnings. Yeah. So the way the Department of Education advises schools on Title IX and Title IX being the law that determines that you can't discriminate against people based on sex but it has broadened out. I mean, it's a classic example of mission creep in, uh, in the federal bureaucracy. And they've made it very, very vague. And the schools are terrified of the Department of Education coming down on them. So the government should do something, schools should do something, and we should do something. As Greg said, microaggressions can be real. They, they, people aren't just imagining all this. So 
people need a little bit of a sense of humor. And sometimes if you say something, you know, you got to be willing to apologize. I was I was talking to a a musician I know, a a trans woman who I knew before she was a a woman. And um, and she was saying some nice things about a band that I play in. And we were in this great conversation. And just unconsciously, she said something nice. I said, oh, thanks, man. And it wasn't until she'd walked away that my wife looked at me. She goes, thanks, man. You know, <laughs> and, you know, I think I think I think she had a sense of humor about it. I hope, you know, it was inadvertent. But these things will happen. We're all trying. And I think being willing to just, you know, recognize it, say, I'm sorry. That's part of the picture, too. Everybody just needs to dial it down a notch, you know, instead of elevating it to a national or campus wide issue. Just like sometimes a few words between friends or our associates is all it takes to to put these things behind us. And that's our show. How do we fix it? Produced by Miranda Schaefer. And our audio engineer is Denise Barbarato. No, Barbarita. At Mono. Mono Lisa. Okay. And our audio. <laughs> I just can't Straight. talk today. I love this. Our <laughs> audio engineer is Denise Barbarita here at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. And this show is produced by Davies Content, which produces digital audio for companies and nonprofits. I'm Richard. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us.